Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the sixth series of Compliance Clarified. My name is Alexander Robson, and I'm the Managing Editor of Regulatory Intelligence here in London. Today, I'm joined by Helen Parry, Regulatory Intelligence Expert, and Rachel Walcott, Senior Reporter, and we're here to discuss the Economic Crime Act 2.0. Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine on February the 24th prompted the UK government to tackle some of its weakest links in counter-money laundering legislation and enforcement. Such action was well overdue, campaigners say. For years, London has been awash with Russian and other kleptocratic money, and the invasion prompted the Conservative government into action. The Economic Crime Act has been an extension of the UK's long-running economic crime plan, which was unveiled as long ago as the Cameron government. Yes, that is how long ago. It has many strands, and the then Johnson government decided to do this effectively in two parts. The Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Act went through Parliament with cross-party support and came into effect on March the 15th of this year. But part two in the shape of the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Bill was always going to take longer. This legislation, which is having its second reading in the House of Commons as we record this podcast, among other things, looks at identity verification, companies' house and other issues. But what does this all mean for compliance officers, money laundering reporting officers and counter money laundering professionals? Rachel, if I may start with you, what are the main changes in the second piece of legislation? Well, the main changes are what's in it. One is, as you alluded to, the long-promised but not delivered reforms to Companies House, reforms to prevent the abuse of limited uh, partnerships, the ability to seize crypto assets under the Proceeds of Crime Act, information sharing that will allow uh, companies and banks to share information with each other, hopefully, to stop financial crime that they see happening in their own systems, and something that Helen's going to um, talk a lot more about, which is new intelligence gathering powers for the National Crime Agency, I guess also the Serious Fraud Office. But this, this new bill still doesn't go enough, and some of the ways that it doesn't go far enough were touched upon this morning in the first session of the bill committee. MPs would like to see a lot more done um, on corporate liability. And this is another thing that's been a long-term discussion with the Law Commission. They would like to see the bill include further overhauls of uh, anti-money laundering supervisory bodies. So these are the uh, professional uh, bodies that for lawyers, accountants, that sort of gambling, that sort of thing that look at uh, anti-money laundering systems and controls, outside financial services. And this reforms to these, these professional body were discussed in the most recent uh, HMT consultation response, but you know, in terms of reducing the number of these bodies and making them more effective. But Treasury punted that into the long grass, and it's not in this bill. And another big thing that we'll talk about is funding. MPs and many people want to see a new funding deal for economic crime law enforcement, and this is as well as Companies House. This is seen as key to making this bill a success. 
And there are fears that the new austerity measures that we're expecting here in Britain will see cuts to the SFO and the NCA. And there are also rumors that the Home Office under Pretty Patel had already asked for 20 to 40% cuts from the SFO and the National Crime Agency. That's it's going to be really difficult to get stuff done without that. I'm old enough to remember when the former Foreign Secretary Liz Truss said they were doubling the number of sanctioned staff of the Foreign Office team, but we never knew what those numbers were. So it's going to be a challenge, isn't it? It is really difficult. And what actually happened in that case was they were just bringing in you know, seconding people onto that team. It's not sure who they were or what expertise they had. But um, another thing that comes up time and again is cracking down further on enablers. So again, lawyers, PR agencies, accountants, people who help money launderers launder their money and people who are uh, sanctioned to avoid sanctions. And a particular bee in uh, MP's bonnet is what they're now calling lawfare, by which they mean making you know, a war on whether it's a journalist or the Ukrainians even, using UK law and the UK court system. This is something that comes up in parliamentary discussions time, time and time again. The so-called slaps. Yeah, and other stuff. You see Russian... Business people, Russian companies suing, making lawsuits in UK courts. In the uh, if they win those lawsuits, that could go fight to fund the war in Ukraine. It's something um, that's a big issue. Helen, perhaps I could ask you to sort of flesh out some of the the points Rachel made in a little more detail, uh, particularly how some of the processes will work and perhaps, you know, some of the differences from the announcements in, in as early as 2016, how this would work. It's, it has been a long time coming. Uh, and it's perhaps a pity that it took the invasion of Ukraine to actually get this to where we are now. But we are where we are now. And how is this going to affect compliance officers and MLROs? Well, one of the things that the uh, the new bill is proposing is to create a new type of information order, which is a mandatory order that firms will have to respond to, although it cannot be used as evidence against them. We do currently have an existing information order provision in the Proceeds of Crime Act, but it's never actually been used. So there was a criticism from FATF in their last mutual evaluation report of the UK that their their powers for intelligence gathering were in, were not they hadn't met the requirements sufficiently. The UK Financial Intelligence Unit, which is one of the functions of the NCA, is the UK FIU. So what they've done is they've said that you can you didn't in the old regime you could only get an information order if it was preceded by a suspicious activity report. And, and it was used to, supposedly to get more information once a suspicious activity report had been received by the NCA. So the new proposal is that it's to remove that requirement for a preceding SAR so that the NCA can be more of a proactive intelligence gatherer. I mean, if it receives intelligence from other institutions or from other sources, it can demand a response from the um, body that it's interested in. That, who is under this suspicion. Now, some people have said that this is unfair and it's going to create 
lots of fishing expeditions and there's some concern being expressed which was discussed in the impact assessment report regarding this provision that particularly smaller firms might find this quite onerous and costly particularly small smaller firms of lawyers and accountants but in fact the conclusion from the impact assessment was that it would not be likely to be very expensive they do have already a voluntary system for asking for further information under Section 7 of the Crime and Courts Act 2013, which they do use, but that one is entirely voluntary. So what they've said in the impact assessment is that they would still prefer to use the Section 7 power, voluntary power first, and only go on to use this new compulsory information order if the Section 7 hadn't worked. And that they didn't think overall there'd be more than one or attempt so the cost in fact wouldn't be much greater for firms um, so that's one of the things that they're that they're trying to do to fulfill FATF's evaluation criticisms with regard to the the NCA's powers as a general in intelligence gatherer it's also going to enable them to provide more more information and seek more intelligence when they get requests from overseas which may be particularly relevant to things like sanctions and terrorism so it's also going to have that effect. Um, so that's the FATF-driven change. There are other changes regarding the suspicious activities um, reporting regime, one of which refers to the notion of um, mixed or tainted funds. If you've got a client, and you're, for example, you're a bank, and you've got a client who has in their account legitimate funds such as salary, but they've also got funds that you suspect might be for example a loan that's been fraudulently obtained from a mortgage provider on based on on false information being given to that mortgage provider um, the, the practice used to be that there would be a suspicious activity report and the whole thing would be frozen and the, it would cause great inconvenience to the client plus there was the restrictions on telling them what was going on because of the, the, the risk of getting involved in tipping off so what they've said now is that provided there is enough money left in the account, which is the equivalent of the funds that you're suspicious of, that money can be left unfrozen and uh, you can just free some of it. So there'll be some of it frozen and not all of it frozen. So it will give the, the client more scope to engage in more transactions. Um, than was the case under the old regime where you just tend to freeze the whole account because there was suspicion. Now, some people have said that's all very well and good for the client, but it will be more costly and administratively complicated for banks. There are other ways, given that in the legislation there is a little bit about seizing assets from e-wallets. How difficult or easy is that going to be, Helen? Well, they've just been given the powers um, so that law enforcement agencies can actually open and create e-wallets so that when they do try and confiscate or forfeit cryptocurrency, they can be placed into those into the law enforcement e-wallets and frozen there. So they're, they're trying to create a level playing field in terms to, so that the powers that they have with regard to cryptocurrency uh, are the same as they have with, with regard to fiat currency. Um, and that just means that they need to make certain technological powers and so on and provisions for creating their own e-wallets. But they're trying to create a level playing field between crypto and fiat currencies in that respect, which, which is obviously a good thing, I would imagine.
Yeah, that came up in um, this morning's committee meeting, Helen, a couple of times. People were worried about storage costs, so how much it might cost to potentially cash the uh, cryptocurrency out of into uh, fiat currency and whether they, they might retrospectively be held liable for you know any losses made there and and also the transaction costs around that you know so there was some debate about should we keep it in the wallet as cryptocurrency right uh, or should we cash it out and so on the keeping it in the wallet side that's where the storage costs issue um seem to have also come up interesting they had a few crypto experts on this morning that was an interesting listen so we can put the link to the committee in the show notes if people are interested on uh, having a listen into that. And Rachel, what else was discussed? What do you think you know will be the, the process from here? I mean, it does have cross-party support. And even with the mm-hmm. factionalism among the Conservative Party right now, uh, it doesn't seem like the, the, any election is or dissolution of Parliament is imminent. So there's a re- you know, there's a more than reasonable chance this will get through to the statute book next year. I was a little concerned that the committee might not happen today. We're co- recording on the 25th of October. Uh, we literally minutes ago had a new prime minister. Uh, we'll have to see uh, whether there are any uh, changes uh, in the treasury, uh, in the home office and bays. I think some of those departments will see some changes at the top, but like Alex, like you just said, there is cross party support for this. Uh, the, committee was very well attended by MPs. It seemed to be a lot of interest um, getting their uh, voices heard on this. And they've got a really good lineup of uh, witnesses for the rest of today. And also this goes out before Thursday, the 27th, we'll be having uh, another session of uh, people discussing this. But just briefly, what came up today was, like I said, this how the proceeds of crime act will uh, apply to crypto and there were some concerns that come up time again about essentially whether the bill goes far enough to anticipate and envision all different kinds of crypto threats the resourcing point came up today a few times people are worried about that like i said about potential cuts just to pick up on that point you know, we were told earlier in the year, you know, there would be extra resourcing for this, but no government minister was ever willing to stick their head above the parapet and give a concrete assurance on numbers. That was then, this is now. The complaint about the UK in this position is the legislation is usually strong, it's easily understood but effectively it's, it's, it's weakly enforced. And we can look at that across any number of other uh, pieces of legislation in this field. But Rachel, I'll come back to you, you know, resourcing is going to be an issue. And I mean, just looking at, you know, companies house, the speed with which you can incorporate companies and, it, it, uh, and not use those or use them for nefarious purposes, it's it's just an impossible task to keep on top of. There are going to have to be hundreds of people, you would have thought, that would be needed to monitor this. <laughs> or, leaving aside what we could use technology for, 
Well, let's just put it this way. I mean, I hate to kind of snigger about it, but it is, you know, not a great situation. Company's house has, I think, about north of 5 million companies registered in it. And it is envisioned that if all the new identification verification uh, measures are put in, that right off the bat, you might lose about a million. So there's a lot of questions about, well, how are we going to manage that strike off process potentially? How are we going to let people know? Will they have any kind of rights of appeal? So that, that's something right off the bat. And already today in the committee, the UK finance representative mentioned that the identification uh, measures included in the company's house reform already fall short of minimum industry standards. They say this needs to be beefed up a lot. Uh, and he made a really interesting point that they're worried about nominee directors and the abuse of nominee directors because legislation doesn't anticipate a high enough standard of ID verification. I mean, on paper, it looks really good. Uh, in practice, apparently, not so much. And he was further concerned, this is the UK um, finance uh representative who spoke this morning, he was further worried that Companies House wouldn't have enough power to interrogate and correct um, some of the potential nominee director's abuse. He also warned, and this was, I think, another interesting thing that our audience will need to know about, is that on Friday, apparently, FATF announced, well, agreed but hasn't yet announced that it's going to consult on new guidance for standards for company registers. Yes, they had their October plenary on Thursday and Friday. Yeah, uh, so. so apparently that's something that's come out already. I think they alluded it to it back in March that they might be making some changes here. Um, I was trying to dig out a link to um, share with everybody, but that's something you keep an eye on. And what um, he was saying was, this is the UK finance guy again, um, that you need to make sure that the UK is not falling behind here. He noted that the US and Switzerland are working on improving their company registers and that the UK needs to stay out in front of this. I think that, you know, that's really important. The, you know, the company's house reform is arguably the biggest part of this bill. And you don't want to spend a lot of time in whatever asset or whatever funding they do put towards it, making something that's still not working, something that's still abused. What MPs complain about is that the you know, barrier to entry is still too low, that it's too cheap to register a new company. Um, they are worried that, that there's still too much room for abuse here. And you know, the proper funding is part of that. So I think it remains to be seen of, of, of how this piece of monumental work kind of plays out. I think, you know, they'll have to tighten up, you know, but hopefully the government will take on board some of these comments. I mean, obviously UK finance is pretty influential. They're going to need to tighten this up and make it fit for purpose. Otherwise it'll be a big waste of resource from the get go. Um, I think what MPs and 
experts would like to see is a more generous funding package for this sort of thing. I mean, we can talk about the economic crime levy. That's a hundred million pounds, you know, given the scale of work that needs to be done. Drop in the ocean. Well, you know, potentially. I don't mm. know if uh, Helen has any has any views on that. What they're trying to do is to turn the company's house system turn them from being registrars into being regulators, and that's a very expensive thing to do. Correct. Um, uh, to do to do properly, I mean, you can't do that on the cheap because it's just such a huge. The scope is so huge. You know, if you consider the number of corporates are there compared to the number of authorized firms that say the FCA has to deal with, and they have a huge problem dealing with the limited. They have got about fifty-five thousand, I think, and that's a huge problem. And people are always complaining to them that they haven't done enough because they haven't kept their their eye on all these all these different firms and big complaints about funds and things like London Capital and Finance and so on. So it's a huge. I mean, it's it's a it's an economic thing. I mean, the government wants companies' house to be easy to use so that people set up businesses and and grow the economy. Uh, and that is a completely sort of antithetical thing to wanting to make sure that everybody who sets up businesses is um, completely tickety-boo above board and obeying every law that there is. So it, the two things are, are, are kind of in conflict and it's finding some kind of a reasonable compromise that is all obviously quite quite a tricky thing to do. Agree. I mean, having loads and loads of Chinese companies or you know companies from other jurisdictions creating themselves on companies' house, not having any kind of UK presence, not having you know a proper UK footprint, isn't doing the UK any giving the UK any economic benefit. It's just enabling all different kinds of. A, cry, a crime, be it fraud or money laundering or whatever, that then underfunded law enforcement and regulators are left to clean up. It's not. It's not good. It's a difficult time. Uh, that's that 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 that's for definite. But I think firms would be well advised to pay a lot of attention to this. We're still seeing fines for money laundering breaches, this is not going to go away, is it? I mean, only last week there was no. a you know, gatehouse. Yes, well, um, gatehouse is an interesting case because if you look at the press, it did concern activities that took place some time ago. Yes, exactly. I'm not quite sure why it's been such a delay, but if you look at the press notice from the FCA for that enforcement case, they particularly picked out the fact that gatehouse was not engaging in sufficient due diligence with regard to firms from higher risk jurisdictions. And uh, that was the only, although there were lots of other things in the in the full, the full decision notice, um, that was the one that they picked out, interestingly, in the, in the press release. And of course, one of the features of the uh, economic crime bill is this, there is going to be a change in the process for listing higher risk third countries or higher risk countries. We used to be in the EU, obviously we're not in the EU anymore. Currently, under the current statutory instruments, um, when FATF changes its list, we try to mirror FATF's lists, and it takes about three to four weeks because um, it's a statutory instrument and there are, there's a certain process that has to go through called the affirmative process. 
So what they've done with the in the bill is to remove that process and to get rid of it altogether and just give ministers the power to publish additions or changes to the list in, in line with what FATF is doing. And that will happen instantly. So firms need to keep be aware of when FATF is changing its list because there, there's not going to be a three-week gap before you will be liable if you don't engage in EDD with regard to these um, jurisdictions. And there was a case, an interesting case, that went to the um, Financial Services Tribunal concerning a money service business um, company, which was authorised by HMRC because it was an, M an MSB. And it's a fascinating law report if anybody wants to, to, to look into it. Very, very long, very granular, very detailed, gives tremendous detail of exactly what compliance systems they had. And it turned out that they won on almost everything and overturned the HMRC's view that they had breached money laundering regulations. Uh, but the one thing that they didn't overturn and which they were liable for was a period of time when they were not doing enhanced due diligence with regard to customers in Pakistan, which at that time was on the list. And that was the only thing that they'd slipped up on was the actual high-risk third country provision. All the rest, the judge said, your compliance systems are fantastic. They're top of the range. They're tickety-boo. There is, the, you know, HMRC were completely wrong in all respects. But it's a very unusual case. Um, it's called... Um, Braxajan Exchange Limited, if anybody's interested. But it is it is quite informative. And also, the other thing that they said in that case, which the, the judge said, with regard to enhanced due diligence, because, you know, with the fifth money laundering directive, which we implemented in uh, the money, our money laundering regulations, there's a great long list of enhanced due diligence, extra things that were piled in, in um, Regulation 33. Uh, and the, the judge looked at that list and she said, well, there's no and. There's just a great long list of things. There's no ands anywhere. So as far as I'm concerned, all you have to do is do at least one of them. And what they had done once they realized that they were making a mistake with Pakistan, they did fulfill one of this great long list of enhanced due diligence provisions in the regs brought in by the fifth money laundering regulation and she said that's fine you were fine you were back you know in compliance as from that date when you started doing those extra checks as to source of funds but I'm not saying that's the the ultimate because it's only a a, a, a tribunal level and it's not the, the court of appeal but it's an interesting interpretation so perhaps the enhanced due diligence regime is not quite as ferocious as it appears if you considered that you had to do all of the things on that list but it's not clear let me say it's not clear well you should uh, mention that to somebody on the committee helen <laughs> well uh that seems as good a time as any to bring today's proceedings to a close thank you rachel and helen for your thoughts and until next time thank you thank you Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.